Hey, doll. Hey, doll. I'm your host, Paula. And I'm your host, Cynthia. And we are Dolls Dolls and and Doom. Doom. Are you a reader? Do you like to read? I love to read. Okay. Did you read the book Gone Girl? No, I saw the movie. I didn't even know that it was based on a book. It was a book first. Okay. Really, really good book. And obviously a really, really good movie, too. For those of you who have not read the book or seen the movie, I am going to give a little spoiler here. So you might want to fast forward a a couple seconds. But Gone Girl, the book and the movie, are the story of a woman who finds out her husband's cheating on her. So she fakes her own abduction and does it in such a way that she knows her husband's going to get pinned for it. Did you know there's a real life case that has been called the real life Gone Girl case? If it's the one that I'm thinking of, yes. I'd never heard of this, which okay. I thought was so strange. So maybe you have. But today I'm going to tell you the story about Denise Huskins and Aaron Quinn. So in 2015, Denise Huskins, who was 29 years old, was spending the night with her boyfriend Aaron Quinn after reconciling with him. They'd been dating about seven months when Denise started to feel that Aaron wasn't being completely honest with her, and she found some text messages on his cell phone going back and forth between his ex-fiance. When Aaron and Denise started dating, Aaron had just broken up with his ex-fiance because he found out she'd been cheating on him. Okay. And then he met Denise and, you know, was really attracted to her and really liked her, But he wasn't quite over his ex. Have you ever had one of those relationships? Of course. (laughs) Me too. And they they never start smoothly, do they? No. Uh, So after seven months, I guess he still was having, you know, a little confusion about what was right for him. And he was texting his ex saying he missed her and things like that. And Denise saw it. So she broke up with him. And for the next couple of weeks, they went back and forth because Aaron really did love her. He was just torn and they went back and forth and they decided on this night, March 22nd, 2015, that Denise was going to come over. She was going to hear him out and they were going to talk about whether or not they had a future together. Aaron owned a home on Mayor Island, which is near San Francisco. It's this really nice neighborhood. It's near Vallejo, California. Oh, pretty. Yeah. Aaron and Denise met as they were both physical therapists. They met through work. They're both super good looking. They look like Ken and Barbie. Uh, They just look like this perfect couple. So on March 22nd, 2015, Denise came over. She listened to Aaron. They talked, you know, talked about things and decided they they were going to give this relationship another go. So they went to bed around midnight and they went to sleep. Sometime around 3 a.m., they woke up to a voice saying, wake up. This is a robbery. We're not here to hurt you. This is financial. And they saw a red laser, like from a gun, pointed at them. This invader made Denise tie Aaron's hands and feet together and told her that she needed to keep her face down so she couldn't see him. And then he tied her up. He tells both of them they need to hop over into the closet. He's going to put them in the closet. As they do this, Denise is looking down and she can see the legs of two people. And as she walks into the closet, one of those sets of legs follows her in there. So the perpetrators put them both in the closet and he puts blacked out swim goggles on them so they can't see anything. It's like goggles with like black tape over them and headphones on them. And the headphones are playing like this pre-recorded message 
telling them what they need to do and what these perpetrators are going to do. Their message says that they're going to be giving a sedative, and if they don't comply with taking it, it's going to be injected into them. And all of this is going on. They're in the closet listening to this, and they can hear a drill downstairs. One of the perpetrators grabs Denise and tells her he's moving her into a different room. So he takes her into the next bedroom. And then they start playing a new set of instructions on both of their headphones. And these instructions say that they're going to be asked for their personal banking and social security information, their passwords, their email information. And if they don't comply, they're going to cut their partner's face or use electric shock on them. So while this is going on, Aaron hears one of the voices say in real time, We have a problem. We have the wrong intel. And he asked Aaron if his ex-fiance and Denise look alike. And that's when they learn, yes, they look similar. They both have long blonde hair. And that's when Aaron realizes these invaders were not there for him and Denise. They were there for him and his ex-fiance. And they're trying to gather like information so they can steal their money is what they're trying to do. Now they have this problem. They have the wrong people or one of the wrong people. So the perpetrators have to make a new plan. And they say they're going to take Denise and they're going to hold her for 48 hours while Aaron gathers new information so that they can continue stealing money. They bring Aaron downstairs and they tape him up. They remove the ties and they tape him up. And they tell him there are cameras all over his house that are going to be monitoring all of his movements. They put tape on the floor telling him what part of the rooms he can stay in. And at one point they ask Aaron if he's comfortable. And when he says he's actually really cold and he asks for a blanket, the perpetrator says, oh, I didn't realize how cold it was because we're wearing wetsuits. And these perpetrators were wearing wetsuits to hide any potential DNA. Because think about it. Their whole bodies are covered. Yeah, that's actually really smart. Right. So this perpetrator tells Aaron that they're going to be communicating with him through text and through an email address that they set up. They tell Aaron to call into work, say he's sick, that he's not going to be able to go into work. They give him Denise's phone and they leave it with him and tell Aaron to text her boss saying that she had a family emergency and that she would not be at work for the next week. And they also tell him he needs to go to the bank and withdraw some money over the next 48 hours. So meanwhile... One of the perpetrators is putting Denise into the trunk of Aaron's car. Now, after everybody left, Aaron was able to push his goggles off and look at the clock in the living room and see that it was about 5 a.m. But just about the time the sedative that he'd been given started working, and even though he tried really, really hard to stay awake, he just couldn't keep his eyes open and he fell asleep. A few hours later, his alarm that he sets every morning goes off and woke him up. So he did as he was told. He called in sick and then fell back to sleep. Now, one of the things that these perpetrators told him he had to do was that he had to make two $8,500 withdrawals over the next 48 hours. And they did this because anything over 10000 I guess, raises some kind of an alert. Right. He looks around the house. He realizes he's completely home alone. He doesn't know what to do. And his brother is actually an FBI agent. So he thinks, should I call my brother? Should I call the police? They told me not to. They've got cameras on me. He can see the cameras that they left. If I do the wrong thing, they're going to kill her. But he decides he hasn't heard from these perpetrators. And that's one of the things they said they would do. They said they'd be in contact with them. He didn't know what else to do. So he called his brother, Ethan, the FBI agent. And his brother said, they always tell you not to call 911. That's just standard. You should expect that. But you need to call 911. So at about 1.50 p.m., Aaron calls the police. 
almost immediately when they show up, they are very suspicious of his story. One of the first things they ask him is if he's on drugs. And he says, yes, I was drugged. They immediately pull the camera out of the wall that's supposedly watching him. And this freaks Aaron out, of course, because he's like, oh, my gosh, they're going to know. Yeah, they're going to see this happening. Right. The police notice a very clean, fresh smell in the house as if it had just been scrubbed. They go to his bedroom and they notice a small blood stain on the bed sheets. And they notice that a comforter is missing and they notice that his car is gone. So they ask Aaron to come down to the Vallejo police station. When they get there, Aaron's clothes are taken for evidence and he was given prison clothes to wear. They also ask him for some DNA, which of course he complies. And he's interviewed by a man named Detective Mustard. And right off the bat, Detective Mustard starts interrogating Aaron as if he killed Denise. He's asking about the text messages that Denise found. And you can tell he's just looking at this situation as if it is obviously a domestic violence type situation. And after about 45 minutes, Detective Mustard just outright says, I know you are lying to me. I know it didn't happen like this. There are no frogmen. No frogmen came into your house. You killed Denise. And I can kind of see why this might be something that they think about. I mean, his car is missing. Her phone is in his possession. It's a very weird, crazy story. There are no emails or calls coming in from any perpetrators. Who normally kills the girl? You know, the husband, the boyfriend. Right. What? So I can see why they would look at him suspiciously. I really can. So meanwhile, Aaron's parents, who were alerted to what was going on by Aaron's brother, Ethan, they drive up to the police station and they're also being interviewed. And all of the tactics are being used with everybody. Mustard's telling Aaron, you know, we know it wasn't intentional. We know it was an accident. She started a fight with you. You accidentally pushed her down the stairs or you guys were experimenting with drugs or maybe you're into some weird sex things and something went wrong. Mustard tells Aaron that, you know, he doesn't want to be compared to that guy, Scott Peterson, because that case, Scott and Lacey Peterson, happened like right at the same time in the same area. Oh, yeah. He says, you know, everybody thinks Scott Peterson's this lying monster. I don't I don't want to have to talk to you like that. I, I don't want to have to go out there and tell everybody you're a lying monster. Just tell me what happened. Don't make me do that. They try everything. And in the meantime, the police also contact Denise's parents and tell them that she's missing. And they also imply very strongly that she's probably dead and that Aaron is responsible for her death. They get the FBI involved because if this is a kidnapping, then it's FBI jurisdiction. And they ask Aaron if he will take a polygraph. And he agreed to do that. And he failed the test miserably. Yikes. According to the FBI, he couldn't have done worse oh, on this no. test. So then the FBI agent is going after him, questioning him. And Aaron says at one point after being questioned so long and not having any sleep and after this crazy night that he'd had with this intruder in his home, he said at one point he started to question his own sanity and he thought, maybe I had some kind of a mental break. Maybe I really did kill her. So eventually he asked for a lawyer because he doesn't know what else to say or do. And that's when they let his brother Ethan come into the room with him and he just breaks down. And at this point, it's about 6.30 a.m. And Ethan says, I'm going to get you an attorney. And he starts cold calling attorneys. And he calls up an attorney named Dan Russo. Now, Dan, he's like a movie character. He's from the Bronx. 
He's got no filter. <laughs> you can't help but to love him, right? right you want right. him on your side. So he comes into the station and he tells the police, listen, if we're not under arrest, we're leaving. And he takes Aaron back to his office. He then prepares Aaron and his whole family that in the coming days, they're just going to be like hell. He gives him a bail bonds card and he pretty much tells Aaron that he's going to be arrested and he tells him how to prepare for being arrested for murder. About that time, a local news station gets a strange voicemail from one Denise Huskins. And in this voicemail, she says she's alive and she gives information very relevant to that date. Apparently there was like a plane crash in the Alps that day and she left information about it so that everybody would know that, you know, this wasn't pre-recorded. Right. This is a current message. Right. She is alive. And this changes everything, right? A shocking discovery. <laughs> so now the police want Aaron back at the station immediately. So they tell him they want to respond to her voicemail. So they give him his cell phone, his cell phone that has been in their possession since he first got there. And they realized through, you know, picking up this phone that someone, presumably the police, had turned his phone onto airplane mode. Oh, my gosh. So as soon as they turn it off of airplane mode, the phone blows up. Uh, I can only imagine. Yes. Ding, 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 ding. Yes. <laughs> All these messages from the kidnapper. Yep. That they claim wasn't reaching out. Right. Oh, man. The phone just blew up. So now the tone of the questions change from Aaron having possibly killed Denise to Aaron and Denise faking this entire thing. So detectives ask Denise's mom if anything ever bad happened to her. Like, has she ever had any real trauma in her whole life? And her mom says, yes, actually, when she was a child, she was molested sexually. And Detective Mustard, gem of a man, <laughs> told Denise's mom that, you know, victims of sexual abuse like to relive that. And so they will often look for situations where they can relive the thrill of their molestation. Oh, my gosh, that... Might be the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Infuriating. Yes. Can you imagine this yes. being said to you about your daughter? No. Now, for the record, Detective Mustard denies ever saying this. And we will see this isn't the only thing Detective Mustard has denied saying or doing. So on Wednesday, March 25th, after Denise has been missing for 48 hours, the kidnapper suddenly decides to take Denise to Huntington Beach, where her family lived. He dropped her off and tells her to count to 10 before she removes the tape and sunglasses from her eyes. So when she does, she looks around and lo and behold, she is standing on the street where her parents live. Now she's just a short walk from her parents' house. So she decides, I'm going to walk to my mom's house. But what she doesn't realize is that her mom's not there in Huntington Beach. Her mom is at the police station in Vallejo. Right. So when she gets to her house, nobody answers, but she does see that someone's doing some construction on her mom's roof, so she asks to use his cell phone, and when she does, she calls her dad, but he doesn't answer. So she left a voicemail saying that she's going to walk to his house. So her dad gets this voicemail. He tries to call her back, but he can't. So now he knows she's headed to his house, so he calls to the police in Huntington Beach to try to get someone over there to be there to meet her when she gets there. So as she's walking to her dad's house, which is about 10 minutes away, she finally gets there. Of course, there's no answer, but her dad's neighbor is there and he lets her in his house to use the restroom. And when she gets out of there, 
from using the restroom, there are two Huntington Beach police officers waiting for her. So they take her to the Huntington Beach police station and they question her. And the whole time they're questioning her, she's very calm. And they notice that she has several belongings with her, including her purse and the overnight bag that she brought to Aaron's house. Remember when she went to his house that night? Yeah. Now that's strange, isn't it? Yeah, that if you were being kidnapped, they'd be like, okay, well, take a bag of your belongings with right. you. Police thought so too. Very, very strange. So they ask her about it. And she says, well, the kidnappers knew it was mine and they brought it with me. And she tells them her entire story. She tells them that she remembers being in the trunk of this car for hours and she was in and out of consciousness the whole time due to the sedative that she'd been given. And then she says that while she was with these kidnappers for 48 hours, she was routinely given benzo to keep her sedated. The police asked if she was sexually assaulted and she said no. She said they were actually very nice to her given the situation. Now, while she's being questioned, she keeps asking for her parents. She just wants to see somebody that she knows and loves after this crazy ordeal that she's been through, right? Yeah, of course. But she can tell that the police have no interest in, like, reuniting her. You know, they just really want to keep talking to her. And they're not talking to her like she's this innocent victim. So, eventually, she says that she thinks she needs to speak to an attorney. So her cousin Nick actually is an attorney and he comes to the police station and she said this was the first moment she felt safe since this whole ordeal started. This was the first time she felt safe was to have someone she knew and loved in the room with her. So now her cousin is able to gather some information from the police and Mustard tells him, we will give immunity to whichever of them confesses first. Oh, jeez. This is another statement that Mustard denies making. Of course. So now Cousin Nick, the attorney, knows that Denise needs some big guns. She needs, like, a really good defense attorney. Yeah, so she needs a shark. Yeah. <laughs> so he sets her up with another great attorney, Douglas Rappaport. In the meantime, we know that the FBI are still involved because this was a potential kidnapping case. The FBI actually offer Denise a ride home on one of their planes. But Denise's attorney douglas says absolutely not i want her on a commercial flight and i want her brought straight to me because he's back in vallejo so when she finally arrives back in vallejo the police spin it that denise is being very non-cooperative she didn't take the plane that she was offered she didn't go straight to the police department like she was asked they were trying to talk to her and she wasn't readily available so they called her non-compliant and told the press that they have had no contact with her that she was just completely non-compliant with them. So the Vallejo Police Department actually does a press conference and they outright say that Aaron and Denise are not victims and that they will no longer be referred to as such. Lieutenant Kenny Park doesn't outright say that they lied, but yet the whole point of the press conference is saying that they lied. Right. He says that Denise and Aaron owe the community an apology and that charges may even be pressed against them as more evidence is gathered. So when Denise finally gets to her attorney's office, she's told, hey, by the way, they think you're lying. They think it's all a ruse. But go ahead and tell us what happened. So she does actually tell her attorney a slightly different story than she told the police back at Huntington Beach. When she gets to her attorney's office, she admits that she was raped by one of the kidnappers. 
She said that there were two things the kidnappers told her not to tell, and she was so terrified of them that she didn't. And one was that one of the kidnappers was in the Marines, and the second thing was that she had been raped. And they told her that since she was not the intended target, they had nothing on her. So that they were going to videotape her having sex with one of the kidnappers so that if she ever told anyone what happened, they would release this videotape. So after raping her on camera, they came back to her and told her that the sex did not look consensual. So they had to do it again. And this time she had to look and act like she enjoyed it. They told her she had to kiss him. They had to say things. You know, she had to make it look believable. So Denise's attorney took this information and asked the Vallejo Police Department to do a rape kit on Denise. So at this point, it's a little later in the evening and the police department says, just bring her in tomorrow and we'll talk to her and we will evaluate whether or not a rape kit is actually needed. And the attorney's like, this is crazy. And he keeps pressing, please test her, test her immediately. We are risking losing evidence. And the police department said, I'll just have her sleep in her clothes and not take a shower. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? They don't want to investigate. They don't. Imagine if this is true. If she really was kidnapped. If she really was held for 48 hours. If she really was raped. Don't take a shower. Just sleep in your clothes. What's another 12 hours till you can come in in the morning? Exactly. Like, are you freaking kidding me? Yeah. And if she wasn't, they would have that proof. You are lying. See? Right. Do the the rape kit. Either way, find out the answer. Right. As soon as possible. Right. Even if she is lying. So the next morning, Denise goes in and she's interviewed. And again, this interview turns into an interrogation. So this time the Vallejo police press her for hours and they ask her all kinds of questions. And some of them are probably very valid questions, but it was the way they were asked with no kindness, with no empathy that made it so difficult and it was questions like what positions did he rape you in and what did it feel like and what did he feel like and you know just stuff like that that again they probably need to know some of those answers but you would ask them with a little dignity and respect right not just they were very harsh they were very cold so when the interview was done these detectives told denise's attorney you need to go home you need to watch the movie gone girl It's going to explain a lot. So on Thursday, March 26th, the San Francisco Chronicle receives an email from the kidnapper. So the first time he had Denise, you know, leave this voicemail. But now he sends an email saying it is not a hoax. They are not lying. And this email provided explicit details about the kidnapping. It even included photos of the room that Denise was kept in. Photos of a fake gun with a red laser tape to it to make it look like a gun with a laser pointer. Yeah. This email gave the whole backstory about these perpetrators and about how they used to do small-time petty crime, but that didn't pay enough. So they escalated. But despite this, Denise and Aaron remained the prime suspects in their home invasion and abduction. While at the same time, Denise and Aaron say that they are terrified that these kidnappers who seem to know everything about them, are still out there. Because there's no investigation. Nobody's trying to catch them. Right. So Denise and Aaron were, like, totally torn apart on social media and everywhere they looked. Mm -hmm. Aaron almost lost his job. He said that he could feel that his employers were just looking for any excuse, what any mistake, so that they could fire him. Yeah, they don't want to be associated. Right. 
And the whole time this is happening, they're also preparing their defense because they know that it's coming eventually. Oh, yeah. Two months goes by and there is a home invasion in a city of Dublin, California, which is about an hour south of Vallejo. And during this invasion, an elderly couple woke up to bright flashlights being shined in their faces and a red laser light being pointed at their faces. That sounds awfully familiar. Doesn't it? So this invader attempted to tie up the wife. And when he was trying to do that, the husband jumped on him and began to fight with him. So the wife's able to, like, get away and lock herself in the bathroom. And she called 911. So now the invader's, like, freaked out, obviously. And he's just trying to make his escape. But the husband's fighting with him. Eventually, he hits the husband in the head with this big, heavy flashlight. And he runs away. But in the chaos of everything, the invader left behind a cell phone. Nice. Yes. So this cell phone is traced back to a woman. And she says the phone actually belonged to her son, a man named Matthew Moeller, who lost his phone the day before. Now, Matthew Moeller is a former Marine who, after leaving the Marines, went to Harvard Law School, became a lawyer, got married. I mean, this man had it all. He's good looking. He's brave, obviously. He's strong. He's smart. Went to Harvard Law School. He's an attorney. Yeah. This is not someone that you would look at and be like, I wonder if he's a kidnapper and a rapist. Turned to a life of crime, because why not? Right. Matthew lives in a little cabin in South Lake Tahoe. It's just this little cabin in the woods. And one of the police officers who was on this Dublin invasion case, her name's Misty Caruso. She was just like a day away from becoming a detective. So she was asked to join in on this search of Matthew Muller's house. So they get to the house. They search it. They find stun guns, ski masks, cell phones, laptops, a stolen car that Matthew had been driving. A blow-up doll that had been rigged to be able to stand on its own was in the trunk of the car. Duct tape. Swim goggles with duct tape over it. And one set in particular had a long blonde hair stuck to the tape. They arrest Matthew. One of the things that Detective Caruso noted was, you know, this elderly couple who just had this home invasion done on them, neither of them had long blonde hair. This was not the first time Matthew Muller has done something like this. So Detective Caruso felt really strongly that more investigation needed to be done. And to her credit, they had everything they needed to convict Matthew of this elderly couple's home invasion. More work was not required. They had what they needed. But she just could not get out of her head the fact that she felt there were other people out there that had been victimized by him. And she wanted to find answers for those victims. So she was able to link him to two other home invasions that had a lot of similarities to this Dublin home invasion. And the two couples, again, reported being woken up in the middle of the night with light shining in their eyes. They were bound. They were blindfolded. And at the time of those invasions, police thought that they may have been related, but they were never able to attribute them to to anybody. Detective Caruso also tracked down the owner of the stolen car that Matthew had been driving. And when she spoke to this owner, he told her that around the same time his car was stolen, there was a nearby kidnapping that had been determined to have been a hoax. So Detective Caruso Googled this case. 
the Vallejo hoax kidnapping case, and everything popped up, including the Vallejo press conference that the police had done, all of the Gone Girl articles, all these accusations, and she remembered this case from when it happened a few months earlier because, you know, it was one of those cases that garnered a lot of attention. And suddenly, without a doubt, she knew this was not a hoax. So she called the Vallejo PD and she left some messages and she couldn't get a call back. Surprise, surprise. I know, right? (laughs) I won't say what I'm thinking. (laughs) But I'm thinking it too, so you don't need to. Okay, good. Eventually, she gets someone to speak with her who said that she needed to talk to the FBI, that this was an FBI case. So she calls the FBI and she tells the FBI that she has a suspect in custody who may be a person of interest in the Vallejo kidnapping case that they had deemed a hoax. And this FBI agent responded with, well, it wasn't the FBI who said it was a hoax. It was the Vallejo Police Department that said it was a hoax. But now everybody's interested. So both FBI agents and Vallejo PD officers came to speak with Detective Caruso. There they were able to see photos of Matthew Muller's home. They were able to see evidence. They were able to see all of these things that seemed to verify Denise and Aaron's story from several months prior. So Denise and Aaron get a call from their attorneys. Suddenly, the police want to interview with them again. But this time, they are told they think they caught the guy. In Matthew's possession was Aaron's computer, the goggles with Denise's long blonde hair, and suddenly, just like that, Denise and Aaron were exonerated. Everything that Denise and Aaron had described now made sense. Matthew had taken Denise to his cabin in Lake Tahoe, and exactly like Denise had said, she had been in that trunk for hours. In the stolen car's GPS, they found the address for the street where Denise had been dropped off on her parents' street. So the attorneys for Denise and Aaron held a press conference, and they really went after specifically Vallejo PD. They said they expected a full apology for their clients. They went on and on and on about how if the authorities had just bothered to look into anything, Yes. That Denise and Aaron had told them. They would have found evidence that suggested that perhaps they weren't lying. They could have even possibly caught this man before he invaded the Dublin couple's home and possibly saved them from that trauma. Now, to this day, the police say that Matthew Muller acted alone, but Denise and Aaron say, given what they saw, given what they experienced, they believe that's impossible. They think there are more people out there who helped Matthew. Yeah, and didn't she see two sets of feet? Well, she did, but remember that blow-up doll in the trunk that had been rigged to be able to stand by itself? Okay. But if they were walking? She said one set followed her. Oh, okay. I'm not saying that I don't think other people could have been involved. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wasn't there. I would think if anybody should know, it would be them. Right. But it, it does... From a, like, a neutral third party just listening to it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, one person did all the talking. One person did all the walking. One person raped her. So I can kind of see how maybe it's possible that there was just one person involved. But what do I know? Right. We you weren't know. there. We're never going to know. Right. Denise and Aaron are now married. And they have a daughter. Oh. Yeah. They're healing. I, I think the big thing is that they were exonerated. Because, I mean, can you imagine going through all of that? And then on top of it, one of the things she said was, you know, in the moments when all of this is happening to her, when she's, you know, in this trunk, and then she's being raped, and she's being kept at this man's house, 
she was just thinking, I just have to make it through this. I just have to survive. And at no point during all of that did she think, after I survive, I have to make sure I'm believable. No, of course not. Right? Another thing she said that was just kind of chilling was that when she first got to his house, he said, okay, I'm going to leave you here in the garage. He picked her up out of the trunk, wrapped her in a blanket, laid her on a cold floor in a garage and said, I have to go inside and clean. And she said, he's probably a mass murderer and he's probably in there cleaning up from the last one. And he's going to take me in there and do the same thing to me. She said that at one point when she was stuck there with them, she decided that no matter what they did to her, she wasn't going to scream. She wasn't going to beg. She was, she just wasn't going to give them that. She was going to remain calm. She was going to remain in her right mind. And if this were her last moments on earth, she was going to spend them being grateful for this beautiful life that she'd had. Oh my gosh. I know. It's heart-wrenching. Yeah. And then all along, remember, when even when he took her back at Aaron's house, he said, we're taking you for 48 hours. So all along during this thing, he kept telling her, I'm only keeping you for 48 hours. And she said, you know, in some ways that gave her comfort. But at the same time, in the back of her mind, she's thinking, okay, if, if that's not the case, what are they going to do with me? Yeah. She said, I'm going to have to fight and it's going to be have to be a fight to the death. Mm-hmm. But then he did. He insane so strange and the whole time i'm just like okay i'm trying to figure out like, yeah what do i believe yeah what do i believe it's crazy and then aaron at one point in an interview he did for 2020 he said there was a moment a brief moment where i thought after she had been found but before they'd been reunited mm-hmm. and you know he keeps hearing y'all obviously this is a hoax this is a hoax he did question for a second did she set this up Is it possible she set this up because she, to get revenge on me, you know, for what I did to her. Mm -hmm. And he said the fact that that thought even crossed his mind is something he lives with every single day of his life. But I can understand why, because the way that they spoke to him and interrogated him, they planted the seed of doubt. Right. In this 2020 episode, they show clips of him like being interrogated by Detective Mustard And I was, like, trying to put myself in his shoes and, like, okay, if this really happened to me, if I just had all these people come and then they took my girlfriend and here I am telling them this crazy story of what actually happened, but I'm being told that that's impossible and that I killed her, what would be going through my mind? Yeah. I don't know. And so when he said there was a point where I started to question my own sanity, I've always been one of those people who's, like, I don't get how people – can confess to something they didn't do. I don't get the false confessions. I would never, ever, ever do that in my life. I've always felt that way. And this was the first time I've ever been like, I can kind of see how he's questioning it. Yeah. After everything, the sleep deprivation, that craziness, I can kind of see how he might be like, did I kill her? Yeah, maybe I did do it. Right. Really interesting case. Was that the case you thought it was? Yes. And actually, I did see that special in 2020. Oh, okay. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like I remember that their attorney, the one from New Jersey or wherever mm, he was mm-hmm, from. The Bronx, yeah. I feel like he officiated their wedding. It wasn't him. It was her attorney. Okay. Yes. Her attorney did officiate their wedding. Yeah. I just thought that was such a sweet, beautiful thing. It was. And I think it says something about them. Because I think part of what put them on the radar was obviously the crazy story and the fact that she was let go like normally if you're kidnapped and taken to a second place like you're second not coming location ho- means you're you're not coming you're home. for right so i think in those ways like it is i don't know it, it, it's unusual i feel like so the fact that these things kept happening but the fact that they were so calm they were both like really calm like in the in the interviews he's he's calm 
Mm-hmm. She's being calm. And that's not what you would expect from someone who just lived through this trauma. Yeah. And I think that actually hurt them mm-hmm. a little bit in these People expect moments. you to react a certain way to some kind of trauma or tragedy. Right. And when you don't, the finger of suspicion points on you. Right. And I do it too. I literally on the way over here was listening to a podcast and they played a 911 call. And by the end of the 911 call, I know nothing about the case. And I was like, no, he's lying. I can tell by the 911 call. Yep, he's guilty. Yep. And it was because he was too upset. He's overreacting. Yeah. Oh, the trauma of it. And then I was like, I know nothing about this case. And I've already said, nope, he's not acting right. I'm too judgmental. (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler alert, I did Google the case and he was convicted of his wife's murder. So. All different. Right. This is different case. This is not Denise. And, yeah. Yeah. Everybody reacts differently. So. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's the real life Gone Girl case, and I hate calling it that because right. obviously it's not the Gone Girl case, but that's what it's known as. And she actually wrote a book called Victim F. Okay. They're strong people. That's for sure. That is for sure. And a situation like that will either break you up or bring you closer together. Yes. And one of the after they reconciled and after all of this, that was one of the things that. I think it was her mother. One of their mothers said, you know, yeah, they got back together and they were so strong. And I've had a few people come up to me and say, do you think they'll stay together or do you think they'll this will tear them apart? And she was like, oh, they will be together forever. They have experienced this together. Like this bonded them for life. They mm-hmm. will. Nobody else in the universe understands what they the two of them understand right so they will be together forever and it seemed like they were very happy and beautiful little girl so yeah Yeah. i'm glad they were able to be stronger and and move forward together yeah Yeah. really awesome so you got a time to kill for us a different kind Ooh, okay okay so it's not a ghost story or anything this is something that actually happened to me just this past wednesday Oh, okay. So I'm driving home from work and I'm talking to my friend Jill and we haven't talked in the phone for a while. So we're chatting away. We're catching up on stories and I'm about to turn right onto my street and I see a cop car with the lights flashing speed down my street. And I'm thinking, all right, I have to come to a complete stop before I turn. And I haven't put my blinker on, which I never do because there's a turning lane. Right. So put on the blinker, turn right. And my house is right there on the left. And I see that there's... Not one cop, but three cop cars in a row across the street from my house. Oh, wow. And as I'm pulling into the driveway, still talking to Jill, a cop is walking up my driveway to my front door and turns around and sees me pulling up right behind him and stops. Jill, he was still talking. I just put the phone down. I get out of the car. So I get out of the car and he's like, do you live here? And I said, yes, what's going on? And he said, did someone from here call 911? I said, no, I've been at work all day. I'm just now coming home. My boyfriend had to work and he left the house by two o'clock. So I'm like, no, no one's been home since two o'clock. He asked if we had any small children. And I said, no, there's no children at all that live here. And I said, I I can open the door and let you look around. He's like, that'd be great. Thanks. So I get out. I have to get out my phone because I have to turn off the ring alarm, get my keys, open the door. And I go in ahead of him. I'm turning on all the lights because five o'clock we've got blinds closed. So it's kind of dark in there so I'm going in ahead of him turning on all the lights I'm like yeah help yourself you know do what you got to do and another cop comes in and one goes on one side of the house and one goes on the other then they meet in the middle and walk around together and they're asking questions and I guess someone had mixed up the numbers in the 911 call because it really wasn't us it was just a weird scary situation but was there a kid missing or I don't know (gasps) I don't know what the phone call was about 
there was just some kind of a 911 call with a child involved. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So that's really scary. Especially and it was it was definitely your house. It was like there's no other. They didn't go to any other houses on the street. I don't know if they did. So the two cops left, and they stood out there across the street for like maybe two or three minutes talking, maybe trying to figure out where it was. If they went further down the street, I didn't see them. Oh my gosh! Now I'm worried about this kid. Yeah. Were they like looking under beds and like looking in closets? Was it like that intense, or did it seem more casual? It seemed a little bit more casual than that. They came back here, and the room that we're recording in, there's two single beds, and they said, I need to ask you about this room. Because upon first look, it looks like two, I don't know, 10-year-olds live in this room because <gasps> it's two single beds. You're right. You're right. I never thought of it. Yes. Right. So like, I need to ask you about this room. My boyfriend has two kids from his previous marriage, and... They're grown. They're, and I even told the cop, I said, my boyfriend has two kids, but they're in their early 20s and they're moved out. They're on their own. Right. But these are their childhood beds mm-hmm. and some of their childhood stuff is on the wall. So, like, they're represented in his house. Right. But they don't live here. Right. I think at, at first glance, it looked like a little bit of a red flag. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. I want to know what's going on now. And I really hope everybody's okay. Yeah, me too. That's an interesting time to kill segment, Paula. Yeah, I came home, and even after they left, my heart was still pounding. It was just like a sure. weird thing to come home to. Oh, no, that would stress me out yeah. very much. And I texted so. my boyfriend immediately, I'm like, hey, this just happened. Are you okay? Did anything happen? He's like, no, I'm at work. I hope the people who actually needed the help got it. Me too. I just watched the 2020 special on the Tarbin family. Okay. As you're telling me the story, all I'm thinking about is, oh, my gosh, what if a kid called for help and the police are at your house and not helping the kid who needed it? Exactly. That's what I was worried about. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. I will say the cops were very nice. They weren't pushy. I was the one that said, I can unlock the door. You can walk around the whole house, the garage, whatever you need to do. Right. And, And I have to assume it must not have been like that emergent. Or they figured out who actually needed the help because it's like they didn't show back up later with a warrant or they didn't like ask you to leave your house so they could bring in the sniffer dogs and stuff like that. Exactly. And there's not not been anything on the news about like missing kids or anything like that, right? Not that I know of. I mean, I don't really watch the news, but I haven't heard anything. There was actually three cops out there, but the third stayed outside. Okay. And then the two that left my house went out and talked to him for a couple of minutes and then they all drove away. That's bizarre. Yeah. I mean, they could have gone further down the street and I didn't see them. Right. Once when I lived in South Florida, I was, I lived in an apartment complex and they had the entrance and the exits completely blocked off. A a child had gone missing and I was pulling out my complex and they would not let me leave until they had checked my trunk. Oh yeah. Weird stuff. That's awful. It's scary to think about. Well, thanks, guys, for listening. Please check out our website for pictures and for links corresponding to each episode at dollsanddoom.com. Follow us on social media and leave us a comment. And stay alive so you don't end up on the wrong side of the grass. Bye. Bye.